0: Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. And one of those surprises on today's show is a very special interview with an actor who has appeared on Star Trek The Next Generation, the Voyager pilot, and all seven seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. As bartender and entrepreneur Quark, Armin Shimmerman joins us on the show today, so stick around for our interview with him. Also, at the end of the show, we'll give you a little preview of what you can expect to hear on the show next week. But first, let's get started with a little news. Well, guess whose birthday it is? William Shatner is 86 years young, as of March 22nd. Happy birthday! And one of his presents is a new project. It was announced recently that the former Star Trek actor will star in the independent romantic comedy, Senior Moment. Shatner will play a retired Top Gun Navy pilot who tested aircraft for NASA... After speeding around town in his convertible hot rod, he gets caught in a major crackdown to get dangerous senior drivers off the road, resulting in his car being impounded and his license revoked. And then, presumably, romance will get involved in some way. Shatner is, of course, known for appearing in the original Star Trek TV series as Captain Kirk, as well as seven Star Trek movies. He also won two Emmys for his role as Denny Crane in the series Boston Legal. And I can, I can kind of see this. It seems that That's what Kirk might be up to uh, if he retired and he was put out to pasture in Riverside or wherever. You know, him tearing up the streets in his souped-up hovercraft. He's getting in trouble with public safety. He's solving mysteries. As a matter of fact, I just came up with an amazing pitch for CBS All Access, and I'm going to have to delete this segment, so forget you heard anything.
1: That information is not on file.
0: Yeah, so congrats, Mr. Shatner, on your new project. Here's to many more years of success. And remember, Bill, it's always good advice. Beware Romulans bearing gifts. And moving from the captain of the Enterprise A to the captain of the Enterprise D, Patrick Stewart recently released a statement saying that he's used medical marijuana daily for the last two years to alleviate the symptoms of his arthritis. The 76-year-old actor, who was recently presented with an Empire Legend Award, spoke out about his illness in a statement of support for a new initiative by Oxford University to explore the benefits of cannabis-based medicines. Says Stewart, quote, Two years ago in Los Angeles, I was examined by a doctor and given a note which gave me legal permission to purchase, from a registered outlet, cannabis-based products, which I was advised might help the orthoarthritis in both my hands. He said, quote, This, it would seem, is a genetically-based condition. My mother had badly distorted and painful hands. End quote. Stewart uses an ointment, a cannabis spray, and edibles, and says that he is now able to make a fist with his hands, which he was unable to do before. Well, this is great news, and we wish him continued good health. But I have to say, it goes a long way to explaining his Instagram feed, with shots of him in a lobster costume, him swimming in a ball pit, and just endless shots of him eating pizza. So, you do you, Sir Patrick, and we say, make it Droh. Well, let's get to our interview this week. I was extremely fortunate recently to get a chance to speak with Armin Shimmerman, who played Quark on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but has also been a mainstay in film, television, and on the stage for the last 40 years. Some of his other memorable roles include Pascal on Beauty and the Beast, Principal Snyder on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Judge Brian Hooper on Boston Legal, where he appeared alongside Star Trek alums William Shatner and René his DS9 co-star. He's also done extensive voiceover work in cartoons and video games, originating the role of General Scar on Bill and Mandy, appearing as Dr. Nefarious in the Ratchet & Clank game series and the feature film, and he's the voice of the sinister Andrew Ryan in the Bioshock series of games. Armin, who is an accomplished stage actor and educator, is appearing currently in the Guthrie Theater's production of King Lear as the Fool, and he graciously took some time off his busy performance and writing schedule to talk with me about his time on Deep Space Nine, getting a start in the business, the different skills he uses as an actor in varied media, and being from New Jersey. Here's our talk.
1: I don't sound like Quark because I don't have my teeth in.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> I am on the phone with Armin Shimmerman, star of Stage and Screen. Armin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Most people would probably recognize you as Quark from Deep Space Nine or Principal Snyder on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but they may not know that you got your start in theater and you've been on the stage for your whole career.
1: Yes, I started out as a staged uh, uh, actor in Shakespeare at the Globe Theater in San Diego, and I've always thought of myself as a theater performer uh, foremost.
0: Uh, And when you moved to the stage, did you think that you were leaving the theater behind or did you know you'd come back someday?
1: I always knew I'd come back someday. That's a very good question. Um, TV, I like to say about TV, I was seduced by the dark side of the force <laughs> sure. and uh, uh, had a very nice career in TV for decades. And uh, as I've gotten older, I wanted to return to the thing that excited me about acting at the beginning.
0: Yeah, and you grew up in the East Coast and you moved to the West Coast. And then I guess you had to move back to the East Coast for theater and then you moved back to the West Coast again for TV.
1: Yes, yeah, So now I'm in the middle of the country where I'm very happy to be.
0: Yeah, you're at the uh, the Guthrie Theater right now. You are appearing as The Fool in King Lear. Uh, this isn't your first show at the Guthrie, is it?
1: No, uh, this is my fourth show at the Guthrie, although my last show was 34 years ago. Oh, boy. Um, and uh, it was at the Old Theater. Uh, right. It's a great experience. The Guthrie is, is perhaps the premier theater in, in the United States. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the country. So to grace the boards here in Minneapolis is a treat and uh, and an honor.
0: Yeah, and you're working with uh, Joseph Hodge, who's the somewhat newly minted um, executive director at the Guthrie there. He's directing Lear, right?
1: Yes, and he's been very kind. Um, I I sent in a tape to audition for the part, and though he never met me, I never met him in person, uh, he very kindly saw my tape and asked me to join the company.
0: Oh, that's really great. Uh, In addition to being an actor, you're a teacher and instructor as well, and you instruct actors in the language and the the process of Shakespeare. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Um, um, I got my degree from UCLA in English, and over the course of time, I've become a student of of Elizabethan rhetoric, and that's what I teach my students. Uh, Most people look at Shakespeare and they go, oh, it's it's old language. (laughs) The truth is, it's not old language. It's modern language. Old, old language sounds a little like this. When that opera with a short recita, the the demage. That's old English or Middle English. Um, <laughs> what people don't understand when they read Shakespeare is not so much the words. The words are pretty familiar. It's how Shakespeare put the words together, mm-hmm. and that is the study of classical rhetoric. And if you understand rhetoric, uh, you will understand Shakespeare better. And and that's what I teach students. And uh, uh once or twice during the rehearsal process of King Lear, I pointed that out to everybody as well.
0: <laughs> just just putting that out there for everyone. That's right. Uh, people often talk about the language and terms that are used on Star Trek shows as techno Babble, but trying to read or perform Shakespeare in its, its dense language uh, or or poetic language can bring a lot of similar problems in terms of understanding and communicating the text, I'm sure.
1: It is exactly right. That's exactly right. And in fact, it, it's, it's no coincidence that most of the actors who played lead parts on Star Trek were all classical actors, all yeah, actors yeah. with background in Shakespeare, because our ability to handle language uh, was needed because of the technobabble that we had to, to uh, speak on Star Trek, although my character, Quark, had very little of that.
0: Yeah. Uh, What, what, in your opinion, is the first and and most important key in interpreting and presenting the language of a Shakespearean or contemporary piece of that time?
1: It is essential to know, first of all, what the words mean, even the little words. um, For instance, the Anglo-Saxon word from, um, I I can say to you that I'm from New Jersey, and, and that connotes one thing, but from really in Shakespeare means, oh, it's a divorce. So as if, as if to say that I'll never go back to New Jersey again. I am from, from New uh, okay, Jersey. Okay, sure. There's a slight difference. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't understand even the small words, um, then you're not going to understand what he's saying. How does the audience get it? I mean, they're, they're sitting in an audience. We don't expect them to have the classical or rhetorical background that the actors do. Right. Well, that's up to the actor to translate what they know and to say it in a certain way so that the audience gets it and And really, the performances where the language is clear is because the actor and the director, and hopefully the dramaturge, have all collaborated together to make the language as clear as possible and I believe in our production of King Lear, you'll get a lot of that
0: great being familiar with Shakespeare i mean he wrote in both uh, uh verse and uh, blank verse, a poetry in verse. Do you think that there's one of his plays that you've encountered that is sort of the most uh difficult to sort of unspool as far as that technique goes? No,
1: they're all equally difficult. I, I, I will say that the plays get a little bit more complicated as he gets older. When okay. we get to the end of the cycle, when we get to The Tempest, Pericles, uh, Winner's Tale, um, uh, Lear also at the end. Um, because he's like a musician. Uh, he's he's learned his scales, and we get that in comedy <laughs> errors in the early plays in right. Romeo and Juliet. But, but he begins to syncopate as he gets older. He begins to compress language. He begins to make language more plastic and do more things, which makes it more difficult for a 21st century audience to understand.
0: Sure. Yeah, he's building his powers kind of as he goes and develops as an artist. That's
1: right. As we, as in any profession, as you do it longer, you begin to become more expert at it and you begin to take, you make challenges with the work you're doing. And that's what Shakespeare does with his writing as
0: well. Yeah. As we mentioned previously, many people would know you from your TV work, from DS9 to Buffy to Boston Legal, many other roles. I'd like to know, how is it different preparing for a role on television as opposed to on stage? What differing techniques do you use or or what similar ones? Well,
1: for one thing, one of the great differences between television and, and theater is in television, you get the script, you make your choices at home you, you don't know what the other actors are going to do. You don't know what the director is going to do. Um, you you come in onto the set with 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 your choices, and you hope that they align with what the director and the other actors want to do. In the rehearsal process for theater, you get a month, and you you learn what the other people are going to do. You simulate. Their choices with your choices, and in, and when opening night comes around, you've made an assimilation, and it's a, it's a collaborative effort. In TV, it's it's collaborative, but not that collaborative. You get about twenty minutes <laughs> as opposed to a month. You get twenty minutes to learn all everything I've just said, and and to make very quick choices on on the spur of the moment sort of things, and you hope that they're the right choices for that particular scene for that particular episode. And, and as you shoot and, you, and you're learning what the other people are doing, you sort of change as they go from, from one setup to the next setup. In sure. the theater, you tend kind to of have cemented everything you're going to do. And although you do gradually change as a as show continues because you're constantly learning, it, it's, it's more of a crapshoot in TV than it is in the theater.
0: Yeah, with your long experience, do you feel like you've been able to when you get a script for TV that you're able to sort of anticipate what somebody's going to want? Or how much of what you sort of plan or think of at home survives to actual shooting day?
1: I would say about fifty percent. I make my choices, and then I'm prepared to to be surprised when I come to the set. Y- you may think, well, an actor's got to do it this way, and then you find out they're not going to do it that way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and 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 that's all right too. You know, that, that's what happens in real life. You sure. go into a meeting thinking you want certain things, and then you find out everybody else wants something else. And and it's the same with a director. A director may think, well, to tell the whole story, because mostly actors see it from their point of view. Yeah. The director sees it from the whole point of view. And to and tell that story, a director may want a different choice. A, a costume designer may have a different choice. You You may think of yourself as a leading man, and then you come in and they put you in rags. Uh, it, it, everybody is making creative choices, and you have to be able to scramble around in order to accommodate everybody's choices.
0: I'd you have do to Do it very
1: quickly on TV.
0: Yeah. And I'd have to imagine the process in setting up and, and performing a scene uh, differs greatly between, between stage and screen. Is there one that you prefer, or is there one that you feel more facile on?
1: Well, yes. I, I prefer doing the stage yeah. because, as I just mentioned before, it's a sculpturing sort yeah. of exercise. You sculpt everything you do. Everything has forethought. Everything has choice in it. You've had a, you have the time to to talk to other people, to to, to try something, fail, try something new, fail again, uh, incorporate. All of that is is a delightful thing for me, as opposed to being a spur of the moment. Oh my God, let's let's try this and hope it flies. Okay. <laughs> um, so I much prefer working on, on stage. However um you know tv will give you more acclaim i get to to play things on the theater because of my because my resume includes the things you said i was in before
0: right yeah yeah it, it seems like speaking of your your resume just browsing your credits that you've played a lot of authority figures in your career from doctors to policemen uh, several judges can you speculate on what's behind that or what you bring to authoritative roles
1: i think i don't look like a dad <laughs> i don't uh I don't look like a um, a leading man by any means. I'm short. Uh, there aren't authoritarian figures. So so the ones you just mentioned are those people in society who cannot look like an authoritarian figure but still be one. Okay. And uh, I think in the casting process, people tend to cast what they're familiar with. Uh, it's very rare that someone will will be daring and break that mold. Uh, David Kelly, who was the creator of, of Boston legal and and many legal shows is able to do that. He's able to take, okay, I, I know what the norm is, but I'm going to break the norm. And I've been very lucky to have done many of, uh, of uh, David Kelly's judges for him.
0: Yeah. You were on uh, girls club for David Kelly.
1: Yes. That was an attorney. Absolutely. Yes. And there too, I was playing against type. Um, and even on Buffy, um, uh, and I'm not supposed to be the typical principal, but even on Buffy, uh, I'm playing something that I'm playing someone who normally wouldn't look like me, but, um, Joss Whedon decided I was the right look for that particular principal.
0: Yeah. You're also a prolific voice actor. You've done voices for many, uh, video games and, and cartoons. Is there a different way that you prepare for a VO role as opposed to a live action one?
1: Yeah. In, in voice acting, it's all in the voice and which allows me to get away from what I look like. I, I played Superman once on some cartoon show, okay, which I would never be cast for. I, I, I played Andrew Ryan in Bioshock. Yes. And it, when they were about to do the movie, they never thought to hire me as, as Andrew <laughs> Ryan I because I don't look like Andrew Ryan. I don't look like an authoritarian figure. But but in voiceover acting, it, it, you put all the choices in and, you, and, it, and it comes out a certain way. It comes out in your voice and you must... You must make your voice do what your eyes do on camera.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have to put in just for myself, I'm a big gamer and a big fan of Bioshock, and I had no idea that you played the, you know, objectivist, industrialist master of rapture, Andrew Ryan. And when I found out, I was I was blown away. What did you do to prepare for that role or differentiate it from what you've done previously?
1: Well, it too has a sort of a classical background to it because Andrew Ryan is it a lot of his speeches are very classical in tone yeah. so it's not so much what i prepared it's what i drew upon uh-huh. i drew upon my my rhetorical background that i teach and that i act in and i used those rhetorical skills for andrew ryan and then and then they played a little with my voice my voice is is deeper and richer uh, in the Bioshock games because they could adjust the bass quality mm-hmm. and, uh, and and use that for my performance. Yeah. I gave a performance, but they, as I said, they modulated my voice quality.
0: Sure. What's your interaction with the director and other cast members like on a voiceover project? Do you get the same level of creative interaction that you would on TV or film?
1: Um, no. Um, that was that even quicker than TV. Okay. Uh, when I did Bioshock, the director was in Boston. I was in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, he would feed me some ideas, and I would uh, try to to uh, succeed at them as best I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the course of Bioshock, we, we often went back and redid things in different sessions, mm-hmm. uh, not so much because he was unhappy with my performance, but because he was slightly unhappy with, with what he had written. And, okay. and, and then with the new writing, he would modulate me a little, always trying to succeed at what he was trying to create. So it was very much a collaboration between his writing and my voiceover acting. Uh, When you do cartoons, the the director will give you a hint uh, very quickly, and you have to move very quickly when you're doing cartoons. And and that's when your director is right there in front of you, and and it's an immediate sort of thing. Um, it, it, It is a much quicker performance thing, but then they choose, oftentimes when you do voiceover acting for games, for instance, they will ask you to do four takes very quickly, mm-hmm. and then they will select which of the four takes that they want to use for the game. Sure. And if they don't like it, they'll call you back uh, in a different session and say, I know we've already done this, but can we do a different take more like this? Okay. That's a very quick sort of uh, Johnny on the spot, uh, come up with a decision very quickly sort of
0: acting when you're playing for instance superman in like a cartoon and you have a scene with lois and you're doing your sort of readings are you trying to sort of in your own mind kind of anticipate the other actor's performance without them there at yes, all or is you have really?
1: no when when you're doing those sort of things mm-hmm. for games or um it, most of the time for games the other people are not in the room with you they, mm-hmm. they if you're really lucky they'll play something for you so you can react to what someone else has done, but Same. that's rare. That doesn't happen at all. If you're doing a cartoon show, usually the other actors are in the room with you, and you can hear what they're doing, and then you respond to what they're doing. So sometimes you're alone. Sometimes you're an ensemble.
0: We'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little more about Trek when we've got Cork with us. Um, we usually ask guests on the show how they became fans of Star Trek, but now we've got somebody who was on Trek.
1: I, I too, became a Star Trek actor primarily because I was a fan
0: of Star Oh, Trek. okay.
1: <laughs> I, I would tell you a story that perhaps you know about, perhaps you don't. I was doing a show called Beauty and the Beast where I was a recurring character. Sure. And I, I auditioned for a prop, a next generation a talking prop. right. And uh, in an episode called Haven, um, I got that part. And m- my agent called before I shot it to say, uh, Armin, you can't do Star Trek because Beauty and the Beast what needs you for the same day that you need to do the Star Trek. Okay. So we're going to recommend to you that you take the job that you've always been doing, which is Beauty and the Beast, and that you forget about the Star Trek. <laughs> but I was a huge Star Trek fan. And I argued with the agent and said, no, I really want to do the Star Trek. And, and they said, we recommend not to do that. We had a fight over that. But I won. I am the client. And um, and I did that uh, talking prop. And because I was a fan and because I chose to do that, uh, the, the, the next part I played, which was two weeks later, which was the, one of the original Ferengi, came right. about because I had done the talking prop. If I had not been a fan, I would have done Beauty and the Beast, and you wouldn't be talking to me today.
0: Maybe not. <laughs> so the lesson is don't be afraid to play a talking box.
1: That's right. And the, and the lesson is follow your heart. Follow sure. your heart. I, I've, I've been pretty much blessed with that. I made some decisions that perhaps were not the wisest, but they've always turned out very well for me.
0: Sure. Did you watch Star Trek as a kid?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I'm old enough to remember the original series and to have been around watching it when it was first aired. I was a huge Star Trek fan. and And in fact, when I started on Deep Space Nine, all the other actors were not as familiar with Star Trek as I was. And I often was the go-to person in the first year anyway. (laughs) Okay, sure. People coming up to me and asking me, so, Armin, you understand this. What's a Klingon? (laughs) Okay. And I would have to explain to them what it was.
0: (laughs) And, of course, now you're part of the franchise. And as a kid who grew up watching Star Trek, that's got to blow your mind.
1: Yes, it is. I won the lottery. Uh, Yeah. The idea, I think somewhere in the third or fourth episode of doing Deep Space Nine, when I I was um, in ops, which was pretty much our bridge, Mm. um I, I realized, oh, my God, this is my bridge. This is my bridge. Uh, although I, I wasn't on the bridge very often, but, uh, or on ops very often. But, but I thought, oh, my God, as it, my, my Star Trek geekdom just, just went overboard that day. And uh, I, I, I couldn't believe I was where I was. Yes, yes, being on Star Trek was a lifelong dream come true. It, it's what all the fans of Star Trek would hope would happen to them. It actually happened to me.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Although, you know, quarks is kind of like your bridge, though, too.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, (laughs) But but there's nothing like (laughs) being on the bridge. Sure. Uh, And uh, although we didn't necessarily have a captain's chair, we had a captain's office. But um, uh, it, it was pretty exciting to me, very exciting to me.
0: Sure. Well, speaking of cork and corks, um, the depiction of Ferengis as a species changed a lot over the course of uh, how they appeared. From you know your depiction as cork, and also going back to your original appearance as one of the first Ferengis. how do you feel about your contribution to shaping the character of the Ferengi and how they became by the end of DS Nine?
1: Well, I have to admit, and I've often said it, that my first portrayal as LeTec in in Next Generation, one of the first Ferengi, was right. a miserable disaster. We were not supposed to be comic. We were supposed to be the next Klingons. But unfortunately, they hired me, uh, which was a mistake. And, and the director wasn't helpful either. And the designer wasn't help, helpful either. I mean, the costumes they gave us was ludicrous. And um, so between the designer, the director, and primarily me, um, we ch- changed the original idea of the Berengi from a, a menace, a, a, a something ruthless, into a comical race. My agenda as Quark, my personal agenda, not necessarily the writer's agenda, but my agenda as Quark, yeah. was to somehow eradicate that first Ferengi performance <laughs> and, and turn turn the Ferengi, which were enormously one-dimensional when I did it, and turn them more into a three-dimensional race, similar to what Michael Dorn had done with the Klingons. Um, and, and to quote my friend Brent Spiner when I worked with him uh, in that first Next Generation episode, to take the characters from being a one-dimensional, to, to taking the characters which which were perhaps had the least potential, to change them into something that had the most potential. He said that was his agenda with, with Data, which he succeeded sure. at.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think you did too, because I think when people think of, I think that episode is the last outpost now, um, people slap their heads. They're like, what were they thinking? So you definitely uh, yep. developed it from what it was.
1: But, but it, was, it was my mistakes that made it as bad as it did. I own up to how bad that was. And, and myself and, and, and Max and Wallace and Aaron and even Jeff, all of us moved the, the gauge on Ferengi from how bad it was at the beginning to, to something reputable at the end.
0: Playing the same character for seven years, I mean, you must you must feel a lot of ownership of Quark, um, especially as the show went on. Can you ever see anybody else playing Quark?
1: Well, Max was supposed to play Quark. I mean, oh, he was the runner-up. Yeah. And so uh, I could see Max doing it. I could see Aaron, who played Nog, uh, growing up and playing Quark. Um, the great thing about wearing all that makeup is, even though I'm 20 years older, I can still play Exactly the way I played it before, and nobody will ever see the difference. That's you can't true, do yeah. <laughs> that too much with, with uh, Major Hero or Cisco, but but you can because of all the makeup I wore as Quark.
0: Yeah. I think I read somewhere that when you were auditioning, um, Max was auditioning as well, and Max had presented a more comedic take on Quark, um, but right. yours was kind of a more serious, straight take on it. Right.
1: Again, it's because uh, I, I was so unhappy with what I did on Next Generation mm-hmm. that I. I didn't want to do that again. And if they were going to hire someone else, fine. I, I just Max was sent my episodes of Next Generation when he auditioned and oh, played on okay. Next Generation. So he thought, oh, that's what they're looking for. That's a comedic thing. And as it turned out, uh, Berman and, and did went with me rather than Max. Yeah. But uh, Max would have made a very good quark, and, but I'm very glad that they chose me.
0: Yeah, sure. And, and Max is, is great in his role, too. Um, That's right. One of the things I love about Quark is that everybody is kind of the hero of their own story. They all think they're all the star of their own show. And I think right. that D- DS9 does that really well because there's no clear us or them. You know, Everybody is kind of the hero of their own show. And we really see that in Quark's philosophy in uh, The Siege of AR-588 mm-hmm. um, with his great speech about humans in the Federation and they're nice until they're not nice anymore.
1: And I'm only disappointed that the writers didn't give me more what I would call um, Spock lines about humanity. Spock made lots of comments about humanity, which were very wise and and, and wonderful because it was an outside eye. They gave me that in that episode. I just wish there had been some more of those, but I was grateful for the ones that they gave me.
0: Yeah, it was a great moment. Uh, Do you have a favorite Quark episode?
1: Well, not a Quark episode. My favorite Deep Space Nine episode is Far Beyond the Stars. Which oh, is not yes. a quark episode no. because I'm out of makeup, but I just think that's an incredible piece of writing, incredible acting and directing um, just brilliance it's not just good Star trek it's great science fiction it's great TV yeah
0: it really is it's it's many fans' favorite episode. Can you talk about uh, playing your character herb Rossoff, in that uh, episode
1: the the writer who had um uh, who had created the idea told me I, herb is not anything like quark yes it's the same actor and because of that there are echoes but but they're not and and i was um the um the science fiction writer who he's modeled after just went out of my head
0: well i was going to ask uh, if you were trying to play him kind of as a harlan ellison analog as some people yeah, thank you
1: exactly, that's exactly who it is harlan ellison and um and so i did some research on that and that was what i was trying to play uh-huh um, and it it was great fun to do that. It's just brilliant writing, and and Avery directed the the episode incredibly well, and I think the actors all fulfilled it. I I must say, one of the greatest props I ever saw on Deep Space Nine was in that episode. No one ever saw it but me. It was a (laughs) a piece of... um, It was a note lying on my desk, not necessarily for me to even see, but it was there, so I guess it was meant for me. But the note on the desk said, Um, Dear Herb, your idea of a teenage girl playing a vampire... Uh, Slayer will never work. Forget about it. And, and it was just a note on the desk. The camera would never see it. The audience would never see it. It was just left there for me. And I howled when I saw it. <laughs> uh,
0: a lot of uh, athletes uh, will train with weights so that when they actually go to competition, you know, they feel sort of lighter or they're they're prepared. Uh, did it feel that way having to have so much makeup and pr- prosthesis on uh, in your day to day when you got to play Herb Ossov that you were able to free- be free and stretch out a little more?
1: Yes, absolutely, and some of the crew, even though that was, in, I believe, our sixth season, uh, some of the crew had difficulties, although they knew me very well without the makeup. They had difficulties working with me without the makeup. I remember a prop <laughs> guy Pat, saying to me, I-, I-, I can't look at you like this. And yet, I'd seen him at lots of parties. He saw me before I got into makeup, after I got into ma- out of makeup. Um, but I-, I will say this about the Ferengi, and I- I've never heard this done anywhere else on TV. Because all of us knew how difficult it was to keep that energy up uh, encased in rubber for 16 hours. So that was our day, pretty much 16 hours. Um, I got all the people in my story, uh, Max, Aaron, Wallace, Renee, uh, anybody who who would deal in a major Ferengi episode. um, I would get them to come to my house during the weekends and we would rehearse the lines, rehearse choices, um, at my house, because we all knew that even though our day would be fourteen hours in front of the camera, um we knew that by hour eleven, the makeup would would drain our energies, mm-hmm. and that we in order to to finish those last three hours, we needed to be very, very, very prepared. Right. And so we would get together and we would rehearse amongst ourselves so that we did know what the other people were going to bring. To, to their choices, and so that w- we could almost do it by rote when we got in front of the camera. And so, although we didn't necessarily lift weights, we rehearsed more than what is normal on a TV set.
0: And that's a great example of you bringing your, your background uh, and your dedication in theater to, to TV. I wanted to say, just for my own self, um, I think probably my favorite Cork episode is The Ascent, uh, which is <laughs> the one where you and uh, uh, René Aubergine are on the mountain. That must have been fun to film.
1: It, it was, although the irony of ironies is the episode is about one of many things, but one of them is of each one of us trying to get this blanket from the other because we're cold. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the truth of the matter is we were in the sun. It was very hot. And we would think, isn't it his time to carry the blanket? Right, I don't want to give the, blanket. the <laughs> blanket. Let him have the blanket, um, which is one of the great ironies of that episode. But it was sheer delight. Renee and I are still very, very close friends. By that time, we were enormously close friends. And uh, it was sheer delight to spend all that time with Renee. Uh, in an episode about the two of us and about yeah. our relationship, sure, um, our relationship grew tangentially, uh, exponentially as we got to know each other better, and, and we, we hit it off almost immediately. Although we had worked together prior to Deep Space Nine, but but just slightly, we had done a play together where we had no scenes together. We knew okay. each other, but we hadn't really worked together. The opportunity to work that closely with Renee and to work on our relationship which a lot of fans uh, really appreciate. It was great fun for both of us.
0: I wanted to mention something else people might not know about you, is that you're an author as well. Um, you wrote the DS9 pocketbook novel, thirty-four Merchant World? Prince series Did of books, generation. which center around the Elizabethan mathematician and occultist John Dee. Why would you decide to write about John Dee?
1: Um, Michael, who was my co-writer, co-writer on uh, the first one, Merchant Prince,
0: mm-hmm. introduced
1: me to John Dee, and uh, I knew nothing about him at the time. I think we had that conversation. I'm going to take a guess here, about 15 years ago, and for the past 15 years, I have been uh, investigating John i uh, I've done a lot of research on John D. My novels are a combination of of Quark and John Dee. They're mostly Quark, and that's what the the publishers really wanted, and so that's what we wrote about. But um, I have written a fourth book about John D., which is uh, which is more, which is all John D. and hopefully no quark whatsoever. And in fact, um, I'm about to get that uh, hopefully sold to a publisher. And in fact, all my time not rehearsing the play here in Minneapolis has been spent in my rewriting of this fourth novel, which uh, the working title of uh, Prospero's Intelligence.
0: Prospero Intelligence um, okay.
1: And that's what I've been doing with my free time here in, in Minneapolis.
0: That's great. That's great. Do you, do you have you always wanted to be a writer?
1: Yes. And in fact, when the other actors wanted to be directors on Deep Space Nine, I only really wanted to write for Deep Space Nine. But they never gave me that opportunity.
0: And people can find your books uh, on Amazon um, if they want to check them out.
1: Yes. Yes. Under my name, Armin Schimmelman, and it's under the Merchant Prince uh, title.
0: That's great. Well, as we wrap up here, I wanted to mention that um, you were involved with the Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind. Can you talk about your experience with that documentary?
1: Well, it was great fun because it, uh, Ira, who was the chief writer on our show after Michael Piller, mm-hmm. um, got us all together to talk about our experiences, at which we did. Uh, we, it, he did that individually. We, we've, we've met as a group once or twice, primarily to promote the documentary. Um, Deep Space Nine is, in my opinion, of course I'm very biased, uh, the best of the Star Trek series. and uh, And Ira and his writing crew... did an exceptional job of pushing the envelope. And because we pushed the envelope as much as we did, um, perhaps people did not like it because it wasn't their typical Star Trek series. But it is a great show, and the writing is phenomenal in our show. and And the issues that we brought up 20 years ago are still pertinent today. Because it really was not so much about going to some planet and solving their problems, but rather about how do people live together. And that is universal. Um, but I'm sure that the documentary, at least in my interviews, was a lot of what I've spoken with you today. I don't know what questions I asked ask the other people, but I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say. I'm looking forward to seeing the project, which I have not seen as yet.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, too. And speaking of looking forward, Star Trek Discovery will hopefully be premiering soon. Um, any chance of viewers seeing Armin Shimmerman show up on CBS All Access?
1: Well, nobody has asked me as yet. I hope that happens. As I said, I can still play Quark
0: um,
1: or anything else for that matter. Quark's um, a great,
0: great granddaddy, yeah. uh,
1: Yes, I I mean, (laughs) supposedly there was one mention at least once that Ferengi lived for a very long time. So um, it's possible that Quark could be 300 years old and not really have changed very much. Um, But uh, I hope they'll do that, and if they don't, I will certainly be a fan watching to see what they come up with.
0: Sure. Any other roles in the future for you that you can tell us about?
1: Uh, no, nothing right now. I just recently, and it's already aired, I did a sh- uh, episode of Timeless, which was a lovely character.
0: Yes, yes. A man
1: named Rittenhouse, and uh, that was great fun to do.
0: Before we go, can we talk about your work with NTS Theatre?
1: Oh, thank you. Yes, that's the theatre, for people who don't know, that's yes. the theatre that I am the Associate Artistic Director at. It is a classical theatre, um, right now, we're about to do... We've just moved into into new digs. We have two new theaters. Uh, we, um, we produce plays, of course. We also have an academy where I teach Shakespeare and other people teach. Uh, we have an outreach program where we um, work with uh, kids who are in trouble with the law. A program, ironically, started by Liz Berman, Rick Berman's wife, uh, who is a phenomenal educator and a phenomenal writer herself. Um, we have a, a writer's program as well, but we're We've moved into a new theater this week, in fact, and we're opening soon with the production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with okay. Harry Groner, who was the mayor in um, in, in Buffy, will be yeah. his big daddy.
0: That sounds great. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today. If people want to hear more about Antius Theater or what you've got coming up on stage or they, screen, they can go can
1: people... to www.antaeus.org.
0: And where can people find you online?
1: They can't. Uh, I, I have a, I have a, I have a Twitter account, uh, which I think is Shimmerman Armin. Uh, okay. I believe that's my Twitter handle, and uh, you can you can find me there where I talk about things that are happening in my life or political sure. things. Um, I was certainly the the creator of uh, of uh, Trek Against Trump, and uh, oh, yes. was was blessed to have all my friends from Star Trek and people I didn't know on Star Trek all come together to, uh, to speak out uh, uh, against Trump being president. But obviously, we didn't succeed.
0: Well, there's successes to be had in the future, though.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Well, thanks again for joining me.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Talk to you soon.
0: Thanks again to Armin for taking the time to talk with us. As I'm sure you got just from hearing that, he's a guy who's always working on something, and we're glad he could share some of his work with us. If you want to check out his books, you can search Amazon for Armin Shimmerman and find Kindle versions of his Merchant Prince series and the 34th Rule. I'll also include links in the show notes for those. The DS9 documentary What We Left Behind has been funded on Indiegogo, I think, to over 400% of the initial ask. So that will absolutely be coming soon. I think Stephen Baer had said um, this summer but it should be in 2017 for sure. Speaking of 2017, it's already shaping up to be an interesting year politically, and as you probably heard Armin say, he was the organizer of the Trek Against Trump movement, which was endorsed by over 70 actors, writers, artists, and more that worked on Trek media. It may not have achieved its goal of keeping Trump out of the White House, but in my opinion, it's as important as it's ever been to keep the good people of Trek united in a positive movement that wants to see our world approach the near perfection of the world of Trek. And they are good people. They're the best people. But all joking aside, you can follow Trek Against Trump at at TrekNotTrump, and the hashtag TrekAgainstTrump is still active, so get tweeting. Armin loves Shakespeare and the stage, but he's not the only Trek alum who trods the floorboards for your enjoyment. As he mentioned in our interview, many Trek actors have a classical background. I mean, hello? Where do you think that Patrick Stewart guy came from? The RSC. And Yorkshire. He's from Yorkshire. René Auberjonois was one of the founding members of the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, which is mind-blowing. And if you look around, you might find some of your favorite Trek stars appearing at theaters in your area. Michael Dorn, Mr. Worf of the Next Generation, is currently starring as Antony in Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, at the Orlando Shakespearean Theater in Orlando, Florida. Opening night is Friday, March 31st, and the play runs through April 30th, so if you're in Florida or the Orlando area, go check that out. Mr. Dorn will also be appearing as himself for An Evening with Michael Dorn, where he will discuss his life and career with the artistic director of Orlando Shakes. Tickets are still available for that, and a VIP ticket will grant you access to a post-show reception with Mr. Dorn himself, and you want that because he is a kind and remarkable man. So get your tickets for that. Go to orlandoshakes.org for more info. If you find yourself on the other coast, specifically in the vicinity of Los Angeles, you should definitely check out Antius Theater's production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, open currently and running until May 7th of this year. Linda Park, who played Hoshi in Star Trek Enterprise, is appearing in the production as Maggie. Uh, That's the role Elizabeth Taylor played in the 1958 film adaptation. You can find out more about Antius Theatre at A-N-T-A-E-U-S dot O-R-G. I'll include a link to their webpage in the show notes, as well as a link to a Kickstarter that they ran last year to raise money for a new performance space, which features Armin Schimmerman in its promotional video and Robert Pine in full Chips regalia and some other actors that you may recognize. One of the things that I really love about Antius is that, you know, sure, it's fun to go to a show and see somebody that you recognize from TV, but no matter what films uh, or movies or whatever these people have done, in their career, they still come back to the theater because they believe in it, and it's satisfying. It's so satisfying to them creatively to entertain people. So support them by checking them out at antias.org. And finally, if you are in the Twin Cities, you have to see King Lear at the Guthrie Theater, featuring Armin Shimmerman and the Guthrie's wonderful cast. Directed by Guthrie artistic director Joseph Hodge. it's one of Shakespeare's best plays, and even if you've seen it before, it it always bears a rewatch. That production continues until April 2nd. You can find out more at guthrietheater.org. Man, I love that show. They even had a Shakespeare-quoting bad guy in Star Trek VI, and they couldn't slip one King Lear line in there? There's no blow, winds, crack your cheeks. There's no come between the dragon and his wrath. No, we just got a clumsy have-we-not-heard-the-chimes-at-midnight reference, and uh, only Nixon could go to China, which is from one of his later ones, I think. (laughs) Remember, listeners, you can join in on the conversation and maybe have your comments read on the air. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D or find us at at E-I-S-T pod on Twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. You can also reach the show at E-I-S-T pod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or to just say hello. We're waiting to receive your transmission. I'd also like to direct your attention to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. We work hard to bring you an entertaining and informative show every week. And if this was the 24th century, where money doesn't exist, we would do it merely for the sense of satisfaction. But this is the 21st century, and everything costs something, it seems. So if you enjoy the show and you want to help out, please check out our Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T pod. We have many tiers, or ranks, as we call them, at which you can contribute, with different benefits and prizes you can receive, in addition to knowing that you're contributing to something that you love, and you're part of a larger community. And honestly, there are more than a few ranks, so you can pick the level at which you want to commit. Say you don't want to commit right now. Say you're just getting onto something, you're not ready to commit. That's fine. How about a dollar? If you pledge $1 a month, that's $12 a year, you immediately get access to all of our Patreon exclusive content, which includes... Essays, that sounds fun, but also reviews, uh, also more interviews, and things like live shows. We will have a live show this summer, which we're recording at Convergence Con in the Twin Cities, and we are featuring a panel of Star Trek writers talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. That's going to be something that you don't want to miss. So if you sign up today for $1, you have access to that and all of our other exclusive content, and you get to know that you're helping out. Anything you contribute would be appreciated and would help keep us flying. So thank you. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an iTunes listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on iTunes? Make sure you're subscribed to the show. Also, write a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating, you know, at the very least, because we'd appreciate it. If you're not on iTunes, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings on those platforms as well, we'd be eternally grateful. Next time on Enterprising Individuals. War is raging between the Federation and the Dominion. The casualties are piling up, and Captain Sisko teams with Garrick to enlist the help of the Romulans in winning the war. The cost? His soul. New York Times bestselling author David Mack returns to the show for a look at one of the most popular and one of the darkest episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine in the pale moonlight. And, yeah, it's the one where the guy says, it's a fake, so there's that too. Once again, I want to thank Armin Shimmerman for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking to him, and he's welcome back anytime. And until the next mission, I'm your Captain Caliban, signing off and saying, live long and prosper.